Hello everyone, how are you doing today? It's Ali West here for another episode of the Kinetic Fitness Show. This is episode number eight and on today's episode we are speaking with Stephen Braybrook. Stephen is known as the Movement Man and he is also the founder of Brain Move. He's an author and has also lectured at two universities here in the UK. Stephen specialises in how the brain affects human movement and we are going to ask him plenty of questions today in relation to the brain and that movement of the human body. So let's get stuck into today's episode and bring on Stephen and get cracking with another episode of the Kinetic Fitness Show. Hello Stephen, can you hear me? I can my friend, how are you? I'm fantastic. Uh, we're live now and recording so um, don't swear. <laughs> I try not to, I try not to. How's tricks then mate? I'm very well, uh, very busy at the moment this time of year for me, uh, teaching uh, two universities, it's uh, it's end of year dissertations, it's uh, examinations, it's getting portfolios ready. So this time of year really is uh, is quite quite manic for me. So at the end of April to the end of May is uh, is very manic with with time spent elsewhere. But apart from that, I'm still working very hard, still working and trying to get brain move uh, in every single fitness environment in the country and, and if not the world. Uh, I've got some exciting personal projects coming on. Continue going down a rabbit hole of education and, and movement, and trying to unravel the uh, the answer to the mysteries that we all find interesting. That's brilliant. Okay, just for the the guys that are going to be listening into this podcast, can you just give them and give me a bit of a backstory and some information about you and what you do and how you help people? Yeah, I uh, my 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 educational history is quite is quite vast, really. I. I left school at 14, 15 with no GCSEs, no qualifications for my name. Uh, I am dyslexic, quite badly dyslexic. Uh, I do have hearing impairments. Uh, I do have a, uh, a form of Tourette's, where it's a, it's a motor response, involuntary motor response. And those sort of environments at school really left me in a in a place of isolation. Really, uh, lucky for me, there were sort of other other students at the time that were, were classified as maybe having ADHD or disruptive and we all got put into a into a class for the last three years of my my high school education, and uh, it was probably the best time of my life at school because no learning took place. It was just a teacher just trying to make sure that we were there and we never did anything that was that was wrong. Uh, so we had lots had lots of fun at that time, but you know, I left school really no GCSEs, no qualifications. But quite fortunate in my my upbringing in that you know, we were we from a, a football mad family. So from the moment I could, I could remember to, to just before my start my 17th birthday, I played at quite high level. I was a professional club for my sem, all the way through my sort of my school years really, uh, and closed my 17th just on my 17th birthday uh, on, the, on the December 23rd day. Uh, I tore all but one ligament in my right knee for, uh, for a tackle. Uh, so that that put me out of that sort of career. So not only was my education lacking in in pure education, but Obviously, I, I thought like like millions of children were. You know, I'm going to be the next uh, next Gary Lineker and Ian Rush at that moment. So when that happened, I was fortunate enough in a way. My father had his own building company, roofing company. So the, the easiest option was to was to go and, and work with him for a few years. And I, and I, I went back to college and I got my my MBQs in 
in painting, decorating, and bricklaying, and all the sort of the, the physical jobs. Uh, but after about a year or so, two years when I was there, I kept I kept hunking off early to go to the gym uh, because I, I wasn't the biggest of guys, and I happened to fall into fall into sort of a powerlifting environment. Uh, and in a matter of two years, I really became very very strong, uh, deadlifted. I think at that moment, for my sort of 20th birthday, I think it was, I think it was 260 uh, kilogram deadlifted raw. Good uh, Benched, I think I, my max bench was 145 or something. So I wasn't wasn't outstanding, but you know I was getting getting quite strong. Uh, so, the, so the gym environment was really my my place. I would go there three or four times a week, spend three or four hours there. If I wasn't training, I was uh, my social connections were there. Uh, and then I saw an advert. Uh, in a magazine, in a, I think it's Muscle and Fitness magazine, saying, do you want to be a personal trainer from Premier International? And I think it was Premier's sort of third or fourth course they ran. So I decided to spend all the money I had and to do the Premier course, which at that, my, that point was, I think it was 13 weeks straight, Monday to Friday for, no, 12 weeks straight, 12 weeks straight, Monday to Friday uh, for 12 weeks. Uh, and then I was incorporating level two, level three, uh, sports massage, nutrition, sports therapy, I think circuits was involved, I think Swedish massage, there's quite a lot of different strings to the course. Uh, and that's really what got me got me into the personal training environment. And fortunately for me, there, one of my instructors back then was a guy called Dave Parker, who just finished uh, doing a lot of the Paul Check stuff. And his first lecture on a Monday morning to me and the other guys was was posture was looking at plumb line dropping the scene and looking at all the different kinds of configurations of posture could be uh, and trying to find ways to rebalance it uh, you know via, via the pull check uh, information and that and that was it you know I, I was hooked I think if I would have been my first lecture would have been uh, cardiovascular fitness or hit training or anything like that I probably I probably would have uh, got through the course but then that would have been it but because posture was the first thing that was was shown to me, and I just fell in love with it. So after I finished my premier course, I did my <clears throat> advanced diploma with them. I did my masters with them uh, back then when they had a sort of masters sort of section to it. And I just did every single course I could spend my money on, from sports nutrition, sports psychology, dispersion populations in that environment, and then every single posture course I could, whether it's from the states through Paul Check, through Gary Gray, Alexander Technique, Stoker Feldenkrais, Pilates, Yoga, uh, Somatic by uh, Thomas Hanna, you know, any kind of postural rehabilitation analysis I could find, I would, I would buy the course. Uh, and that really was was the way in. Uh, and I spent many years as a PT, as a trainer, as well as a therapist, with postural realignment, postural, reconstru- uh, postural integration techniques uh, through both massage and just by enabling someone to, to improve posture by, by exercises and, and prescription. Uh, but I really, I really wanted to know a little bit more. Uh, so I, I applied for university after probably spending about sixty thousand pound, give or take, on education outside. Uh, one thing I wanted to be in university, didn't have the qualification to go to university. I had to go back and get English and maths before I went in, so I had no English or maths qualification. And then did a uh, sports science undergrad, uh, which I got my first in, uh, and then did a, did a master in, is in, in biomechanics. So I did a master at university in biomechanics. And it's at that moment, really, at the end of my master's, where I had a family, my, my, my son was born, I was engaged. Responsibilities became quite thick and fast. 
I made a choice to do a, a PhD uh, at that moment, uh, but I had some reservations about the environment of biomechanics and how biomechanics is implicated within movement and within the human body. Uh, so I decided at that moment it was either going to be a PhD for me or to be serious about writing a book. Uh, and at this stage, I had some ideas of what I wanted the book to be, uh, and I decided to write the book. And a year after, or sorry, two years after, give or take, uh, the first draft of the evolution of the biomechanics was was ready to go. It took another two years because I gave my wife thirty five thousand words and said you should find this quite easy to to translate. But from a dyslexic individual, that really took two years after. Uh, and then that's where the evolution of biomechanics was born. And from that moment, really, uh, you know, I decided to to spend as much of my time self learning. I've always been a self learner anyway, but I decided to spend all my time self learning and trying to go down a rabbit hole of movement, uh, which not only enabled me to speak a little bit more depth about some of the new ideologies around human movement and how the body should be referenced, uh, but also developed Brain Move, which is a company which I have, which speaks about how how the mind has a huge influence on the body, but how we can then reform and retrace and, and reframe the mind's ideologies of what it needs to do today to survive because the mind has certain mechanisms and we all have the same mechanisms that we need to adhere to and if any of that adherence is is uh, is an issue uh, through past behaviours and past history then that's going to respond in, in your motor commands that you see in everyday life and, and during that time I, I wanted to go a bit more so I did uh, psychodynamic counselling qualification, I did a humanistic counselling qualification uh, I did an NLP qualification, master's qualification in NLP, CBT, constipated therapy, I was qualified, I'm qualified in. So I decided to, to spend as much time as I could down that route. Uh, and that's where I am now, really. I'm in that environment where you know, I'm drawing all my skills from posture, from kinesiology, to, to therapy, to, to counselling. You name it, I'm just drawing all the information I've got together to, into a package where hopefully not only can I influence someone's uh, most behaviours and uh, positive behaviours through very simple techniques but also have the ability hopefully to be able to pass those on that leads me to my mainstream job which is now at university settings I work at two university established uh, two university establishments teaching all kinds from psychology to biomechanics and obviously during that time it enabled me to go back and do PGSC and, and, and try to continue that way so you know, my, my, my past is quite varied, but I think the present is really like, like everybody in the movement environment. I'm a movement geek, first and foremost. Uh, everybody that I, I speak to in this environment is a movement geek. We wouldn't be doing this if we didn't, if we didn't love it. And when I, when I mean love it, I mean, you know, you, if you cut yourself and you bled it, it would be exactly what we do. And you're the same. I know that because we've met and spoken many occasions. And so we're all movement geeks, and we all like to try to solve the puzzles which, you know, are unsolvable, but actually the, the buzz is trying to, trying to find little niches and little chips away at those puzzles, uh, just to try to make things easier for ourselves, but also make things easier for, for our clients, whether that be in a rehabilitation environment, performance environment, or just an educational environment. Definitely. There's no doubt in your uh, qualifications there. If anyone wants to ask about Stephen's qualifications, you're super, super qualified from all of that you've just explained and told us. Which kind of leads me nicely into my first question and what I really want to get stuck into. 
Um, going off the back of what you just mentioned towards the end of your background there, which is about the brain and uh, and how the brain affects movement, but not just movement, pain as well, because we know that from the people that we deal with, me and you uh, and other movement professionals, we see a lot of people that are in pain that can be acute, chronic, um, a range of different conditions. Uh, but I really want to know, to start off with, how the brain affects movement initially and also how it affects pain as well, if you can go into some detail on that. Yeah, I think one of the things we need to <clears throat> take into consideration is is the difference really between the mind and the brain. Uh, and I know a lot of people have their interpretations, and my interpretations are slightly different from most people. You know, I'm a firm believer, just due to my education, my background, that the brain is uh, a storage site for information you've implanted within it. And in a strange way, the brain is quite dumb in that respect. It's just, it's just a whole magnitude of different tissues responding to electrical information. Uh, and that electrical information could, could transfer itself into chemical, uh, magnetic, uh, radiative, all sorts of kinds of, sort of forces that are embedded within the body. Uh, it's embedded within, within the mind, uh, sorry, within the brain. So the brain's quite a, sort of a, a dumb piece of tissue in a way that it takes its commands from elsewhere. I'm a firm believer that the mind is what uh, the brain is, a, is is an entity where over time it has uh, the ability to to influence uh, the system, but I don't believe it's a catalyst that drives the influence. What I mean by that is I think the brain, after a period of time, has the ability to make its own decision, but uh, in accordance in accordance with what is needed at that moment. But I don't think the brain was a catalyst of what drove that reaction. And I think what drove that reaction is the embedded information that's implanted within it. And I think the mind, in my perspective, is a, is a cascade of information. Now, one of the key things to remember is that when we are born, our brain develops. It develops in size and it develops in connections. And those connections are quite loose in the response of, you know, you are not walking, you're not talking, you're not really social interaction with the world. There's a lot of things that we do as adults that we, we have to develop as children. And we will find those pathways as adults, but the way we find those pathways is going to be individual to the, trillion, uh, the, the billions of people that walk on the planet. So that tells you that the brain is different from each person. It hasn't got the same mechanisms involved, and more importantly, it hasn't got the same commands that is drifting out to the rest of the system. So I always thought, well, if that's the case and there's 7 billion people different on the planet and each brain is working differently and wired differently, and no other person would be ever repeated the same irrespective of how many people go before us and come after us. Then what is a catalyst? What's a driver? There's got to be a driver somewhere because if the brain is like, like a leg or it's like an arm and it's predictable in that pattern, then we should find that we all have the same thoughts and beliefs and perceptions and conditioning and behaviours and personalities, but we know we don't. So something is driven there. And for me, the mind is an information highway that is connection between, obviously, the inside, how you gather the information, but also the experience that you perceive from the information. So one of the key things to remember as children is that, you know, we are, we are an open cascade. We are you know, a picture which hasn't been coloured in yet. And those colours are going to be dependent upon your first interaction with the world. And one of the key things that we have to do as a human existence, and it's a, it's, a, it's a paradox upon itself, is that one, we need to have some form of social connection. And social connection is high on so many different levels than just, hi, how are you? The social interaction, social connection from a child to its caregiver, and predominantly the mother, with the way the mother looks, 
the facial features, whether the mother smiles, whether the mother touches and strokes, whether there's a, a breastfeeding involved, closest to the skin. All this sort of environment is a embed natural environment for the child to learn its number one rule. And the number one rule in life, or the way that the brain is then perceiving the information, is I would do anything I have to do today to survive. Yeah. I am here for survival, but I need to understand what is safe and what is not. So that first interaction from a child and to its mother stimulates a nervous system activation within the brain, within a child's brain, to say, okay, this feels safe or this doesn't feel safe. More importantly, it gives indication back to the brain to to already rewire what is now not wired. So the brain and the central nervous system have a very loose connection, and it's waiting for information to come in. And the first information that comes in will be when the child is born, is that how safe does that child feel? Because the paradox of having social interaction, a social connection, is that the child, as we all were, is still in that fight or flight mode. It's still there only for food, shelter, warmth. Am I warm? Do I have enough food? Uh, am, I, am, I, am I clothed? Do I have enough water, etc.? So it's, it's purely still working on pure animalistic principles and if those are not satisfied it automatically will find a stress mechanism that's the first port of trauma the fourth port of trauma is when these natural embedding mechanisms within all of us and the brain is being the pre uh, the precursor for this has to have those switches in whatever forms that you believe those switches are stimulated now, they don't get stimulated, but it's whether it gets stimulated to say, yes, I'm going to laugh, or yes, I'm going to cry. Yes, am I going to put my arms up and feel neglected, or yes, when I put my arms up, am I going to be approached? Now, all this, when the child is looking for the safe environment of his mother, and don't forget, it's been in his mother's you know, in, you know, stomach for nine or so months, it's if it, these things do not be achieved within a certain time frame, the child will no longer search that environment. And what happens when onwards, as they go through developmental stages, the information that's been put into the brain will only then be applicable and modified to the first set of information that has been laid down. Because by the time the first set of information has been laid down, your central nervous system picks up that pathway and says, well, if this is what you've given me, this is how I'm going to respond. Whether that's a fight, whether that's a flight, whether it's a flop or freeze or fall, whichever kind of mechanisms that I need to have, you've already embedded in me. So as we then child develops through years and through years and through years, any new information that's been implanted or trying to be embedded by the brain that goes against the first spectrum of information that the child has and has ingrained in their nervous system is a stress mechanism. The child will get stressed because they have no past recognition of that being safe. And to stop a child from just having a whole bunch of information into the system and saying, well, let me work it out, that will never happen, because the more information it has, the more safe it must feel. So if I'm doing something, for example, and I wasn't approached as a child and I was left alone, and I was screaming, 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 my physiological body, my heart rate was going up, my, my, my body was getting nice and warm, my muscles were getting a little bit tense, the blood flow starting to flow, and I'm doing this on a consistent basis. Because we've got the child's got no past experience, 
a no past like a GPS type system within their within their whole body of this is the right way to do things, this is the right way to go, shall I do this? I've got past experience on that, I reduce that, I know that's fine for me, etc. Hasn't got none of this. It's only going to be embedded on the slightest of information that it currently has. And that's its only way of recognising environment. If I, the, 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 the least amount of information I have is the only information I've got to know what's right or wrong. If I've got 10 bits of information, I can make 10 different judgments. If I've got 100 bits of information, I can make 100 bits of judgments. If I've got 2 bits of information, I can make 2 judgments. So the chances are of me feeling unsafe with the smallest amount of information goes up. So my central nervous system now is starting to be embedded very quickly on whichever response that I'm perceiving from the outside. And then we start to develop and then we start to find our feet in a, in a, theory, in a metaphoric type way and we start to interact a little bit of well. We go to school and then school tells me that actually I am a good person, I am a good student, or tell, school tells me I'm a bad student. I can't do this or I can't do that. So then my external information to me that I have no understanding about is now continued being embedded with my nervous system of a basic like a binary switch. Yes, you're good. Yes, you can do that. Or no, you can't. No, you can't do that. And the strange thing is that I will not then search the environment for anything that is going to be beneficial to me. I'll only keep searching the environment for anything that is negative to me. Because anytime someone says something good about my situation or how good I'm doing, I'm going to turn it into, yeah, but oh, no, that's not right, I don't believe that, because 10 people before you said I was bad, so if 10 people said I'm bad and you said I'm right, then the logic sense means that 10 people are bad. So I continue doing this over and over again my central nervous system before I even get to the age of 6, 7 or 8. When I start to develop a conscious understanding of the world, I start to make judgments on how good am I compared to someone else. So now my social interaction wants to go up because I want to play with people and you know, be around you know, fun and excitement, but now I'm being excluded from certain certain games, I'm being excluded from certain situations, so now my, before when my social interaction was just my peer group, my family and the support group, now it's everybody, so now my interaction with the outside world is now mimicking the first interaction as a child, and all this is embedded in the brain process, the brain doesn't know anything that's going on, it's just saying to the mind, or the information, what information are you giving me, and I will respond accordingly, what information are you giving me, and I will respond accordingly, what information are you giving me, and I will respond accordingly, and we continue doing this throughout our life. And the older we get, the less information we want from the outside coming in. Because the more information we, we have from the outside, the more judgment we need to make. But we can't make control of the judgments that we currently have. And most people in the world of pain uh, and discomfort will always tell you that there's a catalyst through my day where it hurts more than others. There's some parts where I think I've got a hang of it, and there's some parts of the day where it just it's, it's awful. And it's that point of stress in their life, and stress could be, uh, it's a management of millions of things. It's that moment of stress with their life where they will reduce as much information going to the brain as possible. They will reduce information visually, auditorily, tactilely, kinesthetically, taste, touch, etc., smell. They will reduce as much of that information as they can to only have the information that it currently has. Because more information from the outside means more of a judgment needs to make. But at that moment, they're going purely in their instinct when they were when they were first born and say, this is the first time that I had to respond in this traumatic way. Because as a child, we don't know the real meaning of trauma. We just know that something is not right and something's different to the system. At that first moment of traumatic experience, 
I will physiologically and psychologically and neurologically go straight back within that system, no matter how old I am, and repeat that same experience. Because once upon a time, that somehow, somehow soothed my system. Whether that was good or whether that was bad, at some point, that made me feel I was surviving. And pain, people with pain, at that moment of stress, will always revert back to that environment. And one of the key things that people need to understand is, or get their head around, is when we are going back to that point of environment, we can't change too much in the now unless we understand what happened in the past. Right. If we can understand what happened in the past, that's just part of the central nervous system that's going to be triggered at the first moment of stress in that person's life. And that stress could be social interaction with, with somebody you never met because that happened as a child. That could be you know, someone raising their voice a little bit louder because that's what happened as a child. That could be seeing the colour red or blue because that's what's imprinted in your, in your, in your uh, brain spectrum when the information came in when you were a child. You know, that could be... That could be learning a new skill like English and maths, but, actually, but now thinking that I can't learn new skills because English and maths is bad for me. So actually anything you're telling me, if it feels like it's complicated, I'm going to revert back to that moment where I thought English and maths is complicated. So this, these methods are going on and on. Until we know what part of the central nervous system you've had embedded in your, in, in your, in, between your brain and, and, and the spinal cord, which section of the central nervous system have you embedded at that moment? Because that's the only embedment that you're going to get when you feel stressed. So it's not so much finding the, the answer in the now, it's finding the answer in the past. Because we can all do things with clients that get someone out, out of pain quickly if we then modify the environment. But we know as soon as that client leaves your step and go outside in the real world, that is not modified. Yeah. They are now reacting to the outside as they react. So we call that personality, we call that behaviour call that conditioning, you can call it what you like, but ultimately the person will change dramatically from the soothing environment you're in until they go on the outside world, and the first time they go on the outside world, they see a loud noise at the car, beeping a horn, boom, that puts them straight back to the moment where they felt stressed first of all. And because you are searching for the same environments as you go along in your life, it's not difficult to pick one of those out. And your body and your mind will revert straight back up that precise moment, up that, up that point of time. So if we're trying to correct a better movement pattern, or we're trying to, <clears throat> trying to get someone out of discomfort, we need to get to say, how can I make you feel safe internally in everything you do externally? Because if we can find that the catalyst of what starts to drive you, we know we can repeat not, not just that memory, but we can, re we can replay new stories. Because the key thing to remember, I think it's one of the things I want your listeners to take home, is that unless you've been hit by a bus or unless you've been hit by a car or somebody else in an accident, etc., and that's an external physical stimulus to you, yes, there will be pain. There'll be a 100% emotional attachment to that pain, and whatever happened in the accident will be embedded somewhere in your psyche. You'll know exactly what colour, what sound, what taste, what touch, what smell, what day it was, what you wore, who said what, what colour bus it was. This would be embedded in your nervous system, and that's trauma. But if it's an internal type of pain that continues being there, and it's been there for so many years, and you just don't know why, and you just don't know how, we need to understand that there's always going to be a story associated with that pain. And that story, that, that pain, would only be about the discomfort of the pain. But when you dig a little bit deeper, it would tell you exactly when that pain first started, 
how their body responded when that pain first started. And most of the time, internal pain is not physical, it's an emotional, mental pain. You know exactly at that moment where it started. And if you knew that exact moment, all you've done along that way is formed a memory of a story that you've played out over and over again that's been relationship to that situation. And because all memories are fake, the beginning of the memory is true, the end of it you've made up, the middle you've modified somehow to make you feel safer when that experience occurred. I always say this, you could, you know, I could split up with my wife and I could have my best friend with me and her best friend with her and both of those best friends will say a completely different story in relationship to why you broke up. Yeah. You can have 10 people look at an accident and 10 people will do exactly different, will say different things that moment because it's all relative to the situation the person's in, but it's all relative to their past history. Yeah. If that, you know, so all memories are fake in a way, so the stories that you told yourself about the situation is now a story, and the pain is in that story. If you can find the story, you can find this, which part of the central nervous system. Now, people say there's a, there's a, there's a sympathetic part, there's a two, and there's two sections to the parasympathetic. I'm a big believer that your central nervous system can be embedded with anything. Because it's just a highway of information that is not information going in at the moment. So what information you go in, whether it's going to rise the sympathetic, whether it's going to drop your parasympathetic, rise, rise up your parasympathetic, drop your sympathetic, you know, the, the, the combinations of what we traditionally learn as parasympathetic nervous system, the combinations of those with the intensities could be, is varied. Because it's just the information going in. So you could have a central part of the central nervous system sympathetically, which is fine when you feel happy. But it's still sympathetic on the spectrum because... That's the way it's working. So it doesn't take much then to drive you into that sympathetic state. You can have a, you can have a central part of the central nervous system that's purely parasympathetic, but it's rising as you speak. So, you know, some people get a meditation and they feel stressed. That's, that's a paradox in itself because you should be in a nice, calm state. But actually that parasympathetic system for you is actually on a stress curve. So everything's on a stress curve. It just depends on how quickly can you get there and how quickly do you get there depends upon the situation you're in and how much perception you have that situation and how quickly you link it internally, subconsciously, to something that's happened in the past. Got you. So Gee. for me, so, so, so for me, pain is one of those things where the physical body is only going to be a, master, uh, a representation of how safe the person feels within the environment at that time when they feel stress. And how safe they feel goes so far back within their life that if you can find that catalyst which... You know, it's not as difficult as, as it seems. You know exactly why the body responds because as soon as they, if you don't find the catalyst, they're going to find the same stress points again and again and again and again and again. And those, and the physiological reaction is going to happen exactly the same way over and over and over again. And actually becomes worse because, as we know, once you change your posture alignment or your movement patterns and you're repeating it poorly, 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 that gets ingrained now. And it's even quicker to get to that point. It's not only can you get to the, phys- to, to, to the mental point quicker, because you need to have that to survive in the life that you live, but you'll get to the physical point even quicker. So now, it don't, you know, people say, well, it hurts my back when even when I squat. No, it hurts your back when you're thinking about squat. Yeah, yeah. Because even if I just say the word squat, your back hurts. You haven't even moved, but you've ingrained it so deeply that physiologically and mentally... You combine those so strong that actually you start get you start getting a motor response in your back just by thinking the word squat. Yeah, that's interesting, and I, I reckon most kind of fitness professionals would have 
experience that as well without even knowing about it because there's times personally I've said all oh, right to a client maybe a new client we're going to do squats today and they're like I can't do squats and so they're already intrinsically and in, embedded it in their in their mind and their neural pathways that they can't do it and you're, you're saying that's because of something in the past yeah I'm, I'm a big believer that you know and it, it could be a, it could be a random squat you know we, we don't know unless we speak to the person it could be they've had a bad experience of a squat could be they've had a bad experience of a person teaching them a squat. It could be they got they got laughed when they're doing a squat. It could be a load of different things regarding yeah. squat. But you probably predominantly find that if some you know if someone says you I can't do something or it hurts, my next question is well how do you know? How do you know you can't do this thing? Oh because I just can't. Oh because it hurts when I touch my toes. Okay, well it hurts when you touch toes. I get that pain there, but. I'm sure the situations. I'm sure you. Uh, in fact, I'm sure you've done this before. I've, the many times I've gone, I've gone. They said, "Be like, hurts when I touch my toes." Like, okay, and you played a game. You've done something. You know, you played a little game. All of a sudden, within two minutes, they're touching their toes because the game makes them touch their toes. Yeah. Or I can't get my arm above my shoulder height. It really hurts. So you play a game. All of a sudden, they're t- they're doing a high five with you, and the shoulder goes up. And you look at them and go, "But I thought your shoulder hurt." Oh yeah, but only ah okay. So it doesn't really hurt when you move it. It hurts when you perceive you're going to move it. Yeah. And that's a big difference because you're telling yourself and you're perceiving the situation that it's going to hurt. And it, it, it will hurt. It might hurt. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. But, but you are already judging the distance, the speed, the intensity, the motor pattern, and what point in that motion it's going to hurt, even before you've done the motion. And when you get someone to do something that puts them into a safe environment, and the first thing you do is make them smile and laugh and giggle about the session, they will get into that pattern. It may not be a beautiful pattern, it may not be the way you want it to be, but they will get into the past the point where minutes ago they told you it's painful. Yeah. All because of that moment, you've now made that exercise funny. Where once upon a time, that exercise was deemed not funny. It was serious. It hurt me. It did this. It did that. It's embedded with that thought and that past and that person. That person, I couldn't do it. I can remember him now. He had a big ground on his face, six foot three, big muscle man. And he told me I couldn't do it with a big, deep voice. I can still hear his voice now. Yeah. So that's the story you're playing. Now, automatically, you made the exercise fun, laughable. You know, you're not the same person as it was. You've got a different voice. So it becomes a completely different perception of the exercise. And before you know it, they might, a lot of the time they get into a movement and they go, that's really strange. Well, it, it proves that all you've done is made a belief at a situation based on past perceptions of the information, past on past behaviours to embed those perceptions that you've been embedded once upon a time that probably 99 out of 100 times was, was from something else outside of the environment. So it's something else outside of your control. You just have to be a witness in that moment, and you used every single sensory input you could to take that information in. Because as children, we can use all our inputs over time. As adults, we reduce some, and we use our favoured ones. Because you was, a, you was an open, you know, open container for information flooding in, you took as much as you could in, and all you had at that moment was something that made you physiologically stressed. Your heart rate went up naturally. You start to, to sweat a bit more naturally. Your eyes dilated a bit more naturally. Your muscles got a little bit more tense naturally. All the way through, you don't know what's happening, but it's the consequences. Now that physical response is embedded with that thought process you had at that time or the experience you've been at that time. And this just keeps going on and on. Yeah, I've got you. So how, 
obviously in an ideal world we'd want uh, somebody suffering with these these problems these issues or these pains or discomforts to come and see a professional like you or myself but how would one or how would an individual like go about finding out or figuring out these past um, traumas or these past um, stories and memories that they've created about themselves without is, is it something they could do without seeing a professional or not does it yeah, take no, de- yeah, def- definitely I think obviously you know one of, one of the things to really to, to focus on and this is the thing where I, I'm, I'm hopefully one of those individuals who try to make everything even though that might sound complex to try and make it as simple to the clients I can now one of the key things I would say to my client is this okay so you know Ali you're coming to see me you're saying your back hurts that's okay your back hurts now Without going too much into your, into your past, and that might be something we, we might want to do as Duke, I want to try, let's just try something now. And all your viewers at listening, you can try this. If you've got a movement, pattern of movement you find difficult, or you've got pain somewhere, I want you to write down a minimum of three to a maximum of five words that you use to describe this lack of moment, or lack of motion in exercise or movement, or the pain you have. So write down three or five. So... First of all, you're never going to get someone go, I feel really good, really strong, my body feels nice and elastic, feels nice and loose, I feel really strong myself, blah, 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 and it still hurts. You're never going to get that. Yeah. Okay? All you're going to get is it feels heavy, it feels clumpy, it feels solid and stiff, it feels like I'm stuck in wood. You know, and the, the amount of words I've, I've had people express that, you know, it's been, been unbelievable. Some of the words have just been like way out there. But it does matter because it means that that word means something to them. You don't tell them what to write or what to say. They do it themselves. So subconsciously, the words mean something to them. Okay? So if I said to you now, write down five words to explain your wife. Those five words you write down mean something in your perception of how you feel about your wife. Yeah. Because you can pick, you can pick any five words in the English language. But you've chose those five. Because they mean something to you. Which means that these are the words... That you are ex- you are telling yourself every time your wife gets mentioned or you have a thought of your wife. These five words always keep cropping up in your mind at all times, and they get manifested as a thought. Not maybe not all at the same time, but those 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 are the catalysts of words that you use to describe it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right. So if I'm saying that something hurts, it's painful. When I think about how bad it is, because if someone's in pain, they're going to wake up first in the morning and the last thing at night, and the whole day they're thinking about this pain. They've got a little man on their shoulder or the woman on their shoulder telling, speaking these five words over and over and over again. And these five words or four words, or how many words I use to express it, then get manifested into everything else. Can you come tonight out to the pub? No, I can't because, and these words will come back up again. There's a new job here. Do you want to do your new, you know, there's a new job. Go for it. No, I can't because these five words keep cropping up again. These words with the catalyst of your life, okay? Because you've embedded so much, you can pick you can pick any words in English, English language, but you pick these five, so they mean something to you. Now, the easiest thing then to do is go. Well, if you're using these to express five words, and this is how your physiological body is responding, both internally for your physiological system to your mental capacity, your psychology, to your biomechanics, to actually what you see to the outside world and your posture, your movement, and your behaviour. If these are the five words you're expressing, it gives you this response. What, what alternative words can you use to describe this that are the complete opposite to the words you're saying now? Yeah. And I might go, well, that, feels, that sounds weird. Well, of course it sounds weird because you never use them. But if the response you're getting from these five words is, is physiological, mental, psychological, biomechanical, whatever, response A, 
by using the complete opposite set of words will not give you the same response that category A gave you. If they are completely different responses, as your central nervous system will go, oh, this is a bit different. What's happening here? So the old pathways you've embedded and ingrained because of those five words or a magnification of those type of five words, you are no longer driven in the same neurological pathway, which means the same brain response is not going to happen, the same brainwave activity is not going to happen, and you're not going to, di- you're not going to direct the information to the same parts of the brain that have been embedded through the mind's information you've achieved as you as a child. So they become a completely different new engrain. And we all know as professionals that if you implant a new engrain into a system, it again is like your child and it's open to interpretation. So at that moment when you've got five new brain work, five new... Uh, brand new words in, and you keep embedding them and make a story up about them, put them into a story form, a little poem, a little song, anything that expresses those words in a nice rhythmical manner, and keep repeating them and go back directly into the movement, you will find that most of the time, I hate to say 100% because that's impossible, but most of the time, if not a lot, you know, near enough all the time, the pattern of movement or the pain it's better than it was before because you haven't driven the same pathways as you did before. It's a completely new engram to the system. That's fascinating. What, doing those what, five words and changing it and then expressing those five words in your mind as you're doing the movement, but make a poem or make put into a story, a song, a rhyme. Just be silly with them because they do two things. One, it'll make you smile. Two, it'll make you giggle. Three, it'll relax physiologically the body. That's three things. And the fourth thing, where it's no longer the same ingrained pathway. So when you do a movement, your perception, your belief of the situation has changed because it's not on the same family of information that you once had. Got you. And what kind of time scale would, would it take to, like, to make the change that can it happen like like click of the fingers like that just click, like click of the fingers yeah got you click of the fingers click of the fingers the only thing I would say is when you use the words you say and you put them into a story the, the, the two one I give so the, 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 it'll have to be in one of two ways okay and one of two ways would be either quite fairy quite light quite lively quite sort of you know couldn't care less attitude, or the other way is quite serious and responsive, and you tell yourself this. So it's that sort of, you know, that hippie type where I'm going to repeat these new five words, I'm going to do a nice rhythm, a nice flow, and I'm going to be very sort of soft about it, or I do exactly the same, but I'm very clinical. Yes, I'm, you know, this is what I want, these are the five words, I'm going to put this so it becomes a very sort of logical clinic. Clinical story. Does that depend on the type of person? Sorry, mate. Does that depend on the type of person it is, or or yes, yeah, yes. And you know this is if your client is someone who's very uh, dominant in nature, or a client is very sort of you know open to interpretation. Okay, Uh, and we know that with clients. And one of the other things that the guys can do is that we know that the brain is is uh, is a structure of many different parts, and there is no real left and right brain. Okay, let's get this one straight. You can get you've got front and back cortexes, you've got left and right, and you've got a, and you've got a, uh, top to bottom. Okay, so you've got all these mechanisms going on. So in a nice, you know, stress-free brain, the brain will then, you know, information will fly around the brain depending on the information that you received in your mind as a child and your development. But whatever information you've got, it will it will try to hit all parts. Okay, until the point comes to stress, and you will what's called disassociate. And disassociation is is that some parts of the brain will be quieter than others, and that's where you get brain, different brain activity. 
Okay, through beta, gamma, alpha, delta, mu, and all them sort of brain waves. That's where you get different brain wave activities because the brain will go is slightly disassociated. And that means some part of the brain will reduce the information and some parts will be highly stimulated. Okay, so at that moment, somebody can be more left driven or more right driven or more front and back and top to bottom. But if you would just work the left and right, we know that the left is a logical part of the brain. So if someone is logical when they feel stressed, and you say to them, just, you know, when you feel stressed, guys, uh, or when you sort of, last time you felt really in that moment where you felt a little bit stressed, are you a person that's quite logical, quite linear, fact is a fact, you like to get things done, you like to make lists and you like to finish the list? Or are you a person that is a little bit like me when stress hits, where you get confused a little bit and, you know, you get a little bit flaky and uh, you want to distance yourself as much as you can, you want to change and do something completely different and come back to it later? You, you, you know, you, you hate making lists because lists are complex and if you don't finish it, hey, it doesn't really matter. Are you one of those people? And it doesn't matter which one you are. It just means at that point, that's the way you're disassociated. So how you then express those words will be either in the quite logical, linear, fact of the fact, and I'm going to say these words, I'm going to say it in order, and I'm going to make the story that I present quite logical. You know, I'm going to go to the shops and I feel this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. But well, the other person might be more flaky. So actually, you know, I want to think the story's going to be around a pink elephant riding a bus on a, in, in the Antarctic. You know, so a bit more mass my story. It makes no difference. The five words you use are embedded somewhere with that new story you're playing. But it just depends on whether you are going to say it in a very logical way that makes sense in, you know, to the external reality or you're a person that has their own reality and make it a little bit more fairy tale-like. Yeah. And um, would you, obviously you spoke there very much about probably auditory and slightly visual uh, techniques, but would you do that with all the other kind of senses as well? So would you do the same thing with like, like kinesiology, uh, sorry, uh, movement? Uh, would you do it with smell? Would you do it with taste? All that, all the other senses, would you, would you use it in the same way? Yeah, definitely. What, one of the easiest things that you can do with your clients, and I'll give this one away to you guys for free, is... is if you, if you speak to your client and uh, you say, give me the five words to express how, how this, 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 this comfort, this lack of emotion feels, and they give it the words, you know, one of the other things you can do to flip onto that is to say, okay, well, I just want you to imagine you do an exercise now, okay? Just just imagine you're doing it, and, you know, in your, in your mind, because, again, what they perceive how to do it up in their mind is going to be how they perceive in their body, okay? So you can have the greatest explanations in the world of how to do it technically, but if their information they've got in their mind is, are you in a squat, are the feet go in, the knees roll, and the bum goes back, and the, and the chest goes forward, and you say, no, 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 chest nice and high, make sure you don't get that, you know, that butt wink in certain positions, you know, keep your knees, uh, you know, then going from the toes is not an issue, knees going from the toes, but, you know, we don't want them to sort of vulgate or vulgate out, they're like, what the, what the hell are you saying? Because all I'm in my high is seeing bum, bum back, chest down, knees in, feet collapsed, because that's how they think a squat is in their mind. So if that's how they think it is, they're only going to be playing their body what they think it is. It's a hologram. So your information that you're giving to them is really not going to take too much if it don't match up. So I say to them, yeah, I go, you know, just, just, just sit there for, for 20 seconds and think about the squat. And they think about the squat. And then I say to them, do you see any colours? What colours do you see? And they will give you a colour. I go, okay, cool. what can you hear? And they will give you something they can hear. You know, what can you smell? And they might give you a smell. How does it feel? They give you a feeling, you know, and... Uh, 
how does it, you know, if, and it tastes slightly different, you can go, you know, can you taste anything? They might. They might give you five, they might give you one. Okay? It makes no difference. If they give you five, it means that all five are highly stimulated during the squat with what they said. So the colour red will be the picture they produce in their mind of a squat. The sound of a horn would be in their mind as they do the squat, the taste, etc. If it's one, it means that that's a high, that's the strongest sense at that moment. Now, it doesn't really matter whether it's five or one. It's that the story they've got playing in their mind of the squat has a certain position to it, which is not the one that you want. It will have a certain sound to it, a certain taste, a certain touch, a certain smell, a certain colour. They might have one. They might have all five. If they say, oh, I've got none, I say, just pick, you know, still think of the story, but pick me a colour, give me a colour. And they might go red. Okay, well, why, I don't know, just red comes to my mind. It means something. Yeah. You know, give me a sound. I can't, okay, well, cool. So I keep going down. So I know at the end of that moment, I've got five words they've got to express, let's say in this case, the poor squat. I know exactly what they're playing in their mind of how they perceive the squat. They've told me, I might, yeah, squat is blah, 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 bum go back. Okay, well, they told me. And then they also told me by me asking very quickly of what senses they have at that moment being active with a principle of the senses. So the visual sense is high because they're seeing the colour red. They might not know all the toilet, but they're, they're for some reason spreading, you know, roses. I don't, it doesn't matter. It means that something on the line, and this is what's been embedded when something went wrong. And during that moment when the squat didn't go well, our pain kicked in during the squat, their whole brain took in all the information from the mind and literally stored a visual TV screen picture. Yeah. So one of the things you can say is, great, if I've got that information, what five words you got to express the movement? How do you think your movement should be? How's the movement in your head? Keep playing that movement. What clothes you seen? You've got that. At the end of it, you go, brilliant. I've got five words that I can change in a second. I've got five senses which I can give complete opposite. And there's no right or wrong. If you see the colour red, obviously I want you now to do a squat and see the colour blue. Well, that's like put a blue picture in front of me or put it into a blue background with the wall colour blue. I don't care. So you don't have to worry too much about, oh, I've got to pick better words. Just use opposite words. I don't have to worry too much about what colour, just pick a different colour or a different sound or a different smell or whatever you find. And then get them replaying this where they can see the colour blue or you might put something, might do some sound or just get them to say the five words and then the story that they play with those five words has the colour blue in or it has the sound of a horn or it has the smell of their baby's skin or whatever it's going to be. Yeah. And then you, and then you get them back to the movement. And I will guarantee you'll be like, what the hell is that? <laughs> so because you, you what you've done is just change the perception and the belief internally of how they've stored the information and given them back a completely different story associated with a squat. Ultimately, you will not go back into, this, into pattern A, which was the, I can't do this, I can't do that, my back hurts, my knee hurts, this is the most I'm giving you. It becomes a completely different activity. Yeah, I've got yeah, then that's, you. That's then, amazing. Then, then you're playing all day long with it. Yeah, so you just, in a nutshell, you're just kind of, like, re- changing the story and almost reprogramming them, aren't you? Spot on. Perfect. My mind picks up the information, the brain will go, well, I'm a dumb piece of tissue, so whatever you tell me, I'm going to then respond to it. That's amazing. And then, obviously, the, the body then responds to whatever, whether that's through uh, the muscular system, for the skeletal, for the vascular, for the endocrine, for the lymphatic, for whatever part of the system, from the you know, cardiovascular, respiratory, it, might, it happens in a second. 
The brain is quite a dumb piece of tissue. It's just circulating information to go to, the, to, to, to each organ in the body, hopefully then onto movement. But wherever the brain interprets can only come from the information implanted elsewhere. Yeah. It's that information that we have to either accept as being good for us or we will try to modify it. Uh, and, you know, you know uh, Sigmund Freud with the defense mechanisms, you know, that's just the way of your, of, of your, brain, uh, your brain going, well, this is what you've given me, this is how I'm going to control the situation. So if it means I've got to be angry, upset, or frustrated, or annoyed, or lie, or cheat, or whatever it's going to be, hey, I've got to do it. <laughs> because yeah. ultimately, the second part of we going back to the first story where we're here for social interaction is I'm only here for myself. Because I'm the only person who can keep me alive. Yeah. So if I've got to do something to, to keep me alive, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, actually it doesn't matter to the external world. And I'm at that, at that, at that precise moment, when I do that, you know, I am literally fighting internally for my life. I don't mind if it affects you or anybody else. I, I, I just care if it affects me. It's only after do I have the conscious uh, reality kicking and go, that was wrong, Steve. You shouldn't have said that to Ali. You shouldn't have done that to his wife. You shouldn't have done that. Only after at that moment, hey. Yeah. I I'm only here to look after myself in that in that way. Yeah, I've got you. Can you give us the list? Give me and the listeners then an example of maybe someone that you've dealt with in your career or maybe recently, and how you've used this technique and the kind of difference it's made to them uh, and their overall well-being. And I'm talking everything: mind, body, spirit. Can you give us an example of someone that really sticks out to you? Yeah. I could, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Last uh, Saturday, I uh, did a. A brain move workshop for for yoga, uh, British World Yoga. We had 35 yoga instructors in the, in the class. Probably the lowest age was probably um, late 40s, early 50s. Uh, there's there a probably couple mid 40 uh, ladies in there, all ladies apart from one guy. Uh, but the average age is probably in, in the 60s. Uh, and these are yoga instructors who are British World Yoga instructors who have been probably practicing yoga for the last 20 or 30 years apiece. And obviously, we, they came in with certain poses, back bends being a big one in certain positions uh, because past back injuries, past knee injuries. Uh, and there were things like down dogs, which were from some people, balance issues for the elderly, etc. So, one of the first things we did was okay, cool, just get with a partner and you know, pick five poses that we want to work on today. So, today's the moment we pose one. So, I want you to tell your partner about the pose, tell them everything you can about the pose, you know, just tell them exactly, and the person who's the partner, just make a few notes down, and they were expressing it, it was this, it was that, it hurt here, it did that, and they, they come up with their own story, there's no preconceptions of story, and the partner wiped down, I'm like, great, so cool guys, so, we've, we've got them, we've got those parts, we've got those expressions of movements, and you've explained it in a certain way, okay, next thing you need to know is, there's a list on the wall, there's a left list and a right list, and the left list had, Things like, you know, are you logical? Are you clinical? Do you like facts? Has everything got to be right? Are you most dominant, etc.? Where the right one was, you know, do you like, you know, do you run away from confrontation? Do you find different things to do when you get stressed? Are you a person that puts things off, doesn't want to make lists, and things like that? So there was different, different groups. And I said, okay, so let's think about that movement again and really think about it and then. When you thought about it, which one of those two lists do you think that you're going to go to? Naturally, would you, would you gravitate to? So, for example, someone said, I was list, um, I'm a left person. Okay, you're a logical person, great. So when you get stressed, you go into the left part of the brain, you're a logical person, you like to make lists, and 
that is how you're going to respond to this situation. You haven't got much information coming from the outside, which is more holistic and open in nature, which gives you a different interpretation. And it's have both work at the same time, just like front of back or top to bottom. So I've got two things going on. Now you've got a story uh, of how your client thinks of the situation, and I had a client come up. She gave me her five, five things, and then she looked up the list and said, you know, yeah, if I'm thinking about the situation, I'm thinking about this back bend, and I'm in that list there. So I'm going, great. So you're in, le- you're, you're in brain left, great. That's where you're in. You have these five words. This is how you use the words to express. And this is the response that you get for your movement. So can you please show me? And they got into the movement. They went straight into this left part of the brain. They went straight into these five words. And obviously the movement gets replayed and repeated over and over again. Nothing changes. So I'm like, great, cool. How's that feel? Well, oh, back's still stiff. It feel, now I'm be more peed off now because I'm in a group. And it's even worse. Okay, brilliant. Okay, wasn't planned to that, but we got to that point. So what are you going to do now? What five words were you used to, to alternative? Well, I want it to be this, and I want it to be that, and I want it to be this, and I want it to be that, and I want it to be this. Great. Now, it's no point in me keeping the left side of the brain, because that's where you naturally just tend to. So I want you to go into the right side of the brain. So now, the story that I want you to play to yourself, I want you to put all these five words, and I want you to repeat them, but I want you to repeat them in a song form. Now, that part of the brain loves song. I want you to put it into a flowing, rhythmical way. Like a mantra, because you guys are yoga instructors, the mantras are good, but I want to do it in a, in a sort of looser way. So not like, I must be good. It's like, you know, I want to be good, and today, you know, so you've got a little poem, a little song going about it. Don't care what it is. Great. So you've got your five new words, you've got a little poem, because you need to be in that right side of the brain, which is more open and more loose to the interpretation. So songs and poems and, you know, nice soft mantras, things like that are all great. So I want you just to replay these stories over and over again. And just keep saying the words. And then she's smiling and she's feeling happy because it allows her to be a bit more expressive where actually she really wants to. But at that moment, she can't find that position. And then she's in there and says, how's she going to back bend now? And without, without even going into any, anything else, she went straight into the back bend. And she burst into tears. Her friends, could, you know, her people in the class couldn't believe it. She's right on the back bend. Come back, how's that feel? You know, she's sitting there like, this is weird because it doesn't normally do that and the back's not hurting. Try again. Plays those five words again. It's nice open. She's got a song going down the rhythm. Her friends sing the same song alongside her. She's smiling. Her friend's smiling. She feels nice and loose, nice and relaxed. Those words she used become real. And then she goes into the back bend even further. Unbelievable. And then she, come, and then she comes out of it. And again, she's, and I'm like, brilliant, great. Now, that's a skill that you can have for the rest of your life in any activity you want. Now, if it's somebody else later on the day, we still have the five words, but she needs to be more, she was purely in the right brain. And I said, no, your brain needs to be in the left for this activity because you go in the right in this activity and it's too open to interpretation. So you need to be more dominant. You need to make it a fact and a list based and more clinical. So you need to say it. I don't, I don't want it to be a song or a pun, I want you to mantra it, you know, relaxed, free, flowing. You know, I want you to keep repeating this over and again. Very dominant, but very dominant. Where the person on the left side, uh, right side of the brain, I want you to be more holistic and softer and quieter. For you, who has to get in the left, I want you to be shouting, screaming, and telling yourself what you have to do. Be that Wall Street broker. Then go back and exactly the same response. This was at that moment, she required a different part of the brain to be stimulated with the information coming in. That allowed balance. And with those five words you used differently to express it, that allowed her to be more free in that motion. And they both got into back bends with, with, with ease. 
Uh, and again, from then onwards, you see the face expression change. There's more interaction. She's laughing. She's joking. She's making things down. I think one made a phone call. You know, they feel enthusiastic about wanting not only being in that class, but having that particular one skill that they can use at any time they want in their life. Because whatever happens, you're always going to have a story that is embedded with emotion, which is embedded with thought, feeling, words, and sensory input. Because you can't have emotions without a word to express it or sensory input to decide it. So once you've got that in the system, we know that we can just change the opposite. And I've had people in the past, I did the other day with a student that I was teaching, uh, again, couldn't get into a squat. And I just said, what's the first color you think of? He said, red. And I said, well, what color do you want now? He said, what, what can I have? Well, you can have any color you want, you know. And so when we all just come up with yellow polka dots, uh, a, a yellow background with, with, with blue polka dots. And he was thinking of a yellow background, blue polka dots, doesn't normally think like that. He started to laugh a little bit. And as he's thinking that in the mind, that particular colour is now down-regulating the sensory system. Any other sensory input that goes along with that colour, because no sensory input works individually, it works as a unit. You switch one on, they all go on. All those other influences became down-regulated. And in that moment, he got burnt in the spot. And then it's a case of, wow, this is even weird. And he wants to try again and try again and try again. He's more freer, more happier. And he goes back to that story that you're tricking someone and they get to the bottom, they want to do it even more. They want to do it even more. And the more they do it, the more the new pattern's embedded. And, you know, that sort of, that sort of natural trick to have to get someone into the opposite part of the brain to give more stimulation is, is a very quick thing that you can do. And it never fails to amaze me that, I, that people get into better range of motion. And if someone gets into a better range of motion, where before range of motion A caused them pain, but now in range, range of motion B you tend to find the pain point or the pain curve goes. As soon as it's down-regulated once, brilliant. It's down-regulated again. Do you know what um, I love about it? Just goes down and down. Do you know what I love about it, Stephen, is like it's so, it's so simple and so easy and so quick, but the, like it's so effective as well that the results are, like you say, from those examples you've used there, are almost instant. Um, yeah. What I, The next question I want to ask is, how sticky, in inverted commas, are these results so like how long does it stick with that person from there on will will it will it always help them improve or do you find that sometimes they'll do it and then they'll slip back into old ways or or how how does it work yeah i think i think one of the key things to remember is that once you implant some sort of scottish individual it is up to the individual to continue that motion going now the great thing about it is that because you've embedded new emotions that to that environment and at the end of everything when they, when they find better movement they're laughing and smiling now they, they can remember that moment for the rest of their life they remember not only they felt better in their movement but they remember who was around them what building they were in what day it was in just like the same emotions if you felt pain you know exactly where you were what time what day or who was around you so you've been that new story and that new story then is spread so in reality all they've got to do is go back and think about that particular moment when everything felt great for them, and they're going to get the same physiological response from onwards. Like everything else, people then have to take that as, you know, I've got to do the work. You know, it's not a case of, you know, I've done it once and it's going to be permanent for life. If you did three or four times, but just by the thought of, wow, you know, that was really good, you'll get the same physical responses. You then have a bad situation before you go into that movement. Oh, that felt really great there. You'll get a smile on your face. You'll feel really happy about it. And you'll go back straight into the same physiological mental responses you had when it felt right and then it's felt right straight away so it's just like everything else just you know you can call it a form you know a form of like mindfulness is when you go into a situation you just say to yourself rather than just instinctively now respond 
what can I do to trigger a different response? So that, that one second of clarity, to start with, you go, yeah, I remember, it was like, it was 15th of May, and I remember, wow, that, just that alone, bang. You know, or what color, I remember the color red was there, the color red was amazing, cool, just think of the color red. All of a sudden, bang, you get the same responses that you did before, and if that same response is better movement, you'll get a better movement as you did it on that day, and then you can work in upon it all day long, you know. So, it, you know, when I teach clients, I teach them very simple things they do outside that they don't have to even do any movements for. It's just so they can trigger a response straight away. Uh, and if they get to a stressful situation, because all these things only occur in stressful situations, whether that's during a movement or in, in daily life, I say just do one thing. And I tend to link that sometimes back to something so simple like, you know, flicking your fingernail or you know, tapping your hand three times on your leg or something that, you know, they can do in an instantaneous heartbeat. So then they go straight back into the same physiological or mental responses. They were at that moment where they were stressed before, but then the stress became better because they accomplished something during it. So I, I find that, you know, if you let them go, then like everything else, you know, but if you, in, a, in an NLP language called an anchor, if you can anchor something to them as they leave, uh, and that could just be, just think of a colour red if I put red into the picture, or, you know, think of the smile on your face, and actually, who else you think about? Well, I think about my husband, I smile, great. But you've got to just think about your husband, because your husband makes you smile, your smile makes you physiologically respond, and that's going to give the same response as you were when you're back in that exercise class, or that movement pattern that you found discomfort. So the amount of times I've linked, I've linked uh, that to, to, someone, to a loved one, uh, that they don't even have to say the loved one's name, especially the loved ones around you, what they do is look at them and they get the same response. So oh, you yeah, start like breathing. When you breathe 3,000 plus times a day, you can embed something where they visually see or hear or smell or taste something of which I always try to go, to, go back to, their pure love. Because if, if it's a pure love, they're, they're using their senses around that consistently, and each time they see that pure love or hear or taste or smell what it's going to be, then they're just going to just keep ingrained that neurological pathway and everything that was embedded with that feeling of love or that smile that produced love, etc., will come all flooding back. So it will link everything together. And that link then openly ends up being, yes, I remember that day where I did this movement and I felt great. So I can do it and I know I can. And then the wanting to do more exercise, the wanting to get into those positions, the wanting to come to the gym, the wanting to do squats goes up and up and up. And then obviously, you know, the, the, the ability to move your body then influences then the, the ability to maintain that. That, you know that new phase of your life. That's awesome. Just going, just going back on ourselves a little bit about the uh, the logical, the left left side and logic logic side, and the right side, the more kind of creative imagination. From your experience, would you say you see more logical people in your in your work, or do you see more of the the creative people, or is it a real mix? It's strange, because I think you know. The left and right brain has a bit of a sort of a hard time, you know, people say there's no such thing as left and right. And there is no such thing as left and right as such until you go into that point of dissociation, where one part gets heightened more than the other part. Doesn't mean the other part's taken taken a, a back seat, just means that the, the information it's perceived has been reduced. Uh, because the, the strongest influence you have, the strongest behaviour mechanisms you have, is in a particular sort of right side of the brain. And um, we know that left and right, left side of the brain don't control the right and right left. We know there can be there's so many deviations. I've had Teach taught courses where people have been like right eye, you know, at that point of stress with that moment they're thinking about they've been left eye dominant, right ear dominant, left brain, left foot, and it's been a mix and match of all that kind of things. Because if there is no real right way of how you've embedded that system, it's just that that's how you've embedded that system, yeah. Uh, and it's different for everybody else. I, I you tend to find it's, 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 a, it's a 
geographical switch in a strange way. Uh, I'm from Worthing, close to Brighton. So predominantly around my area, you know, I, you see a lot of students and you see a lot of uh, alternative lifestyles Yeah. in a way. Uh, so, you know, these guys are, are more right side. And then if I go to London, uh, Canadian Wolf and place like that, then obviously the environment that the stockbrokers are in, you know, they have to do a job in a certain way. So they're very sort of logical in that respect. I think it's very similar to, in a strange way, to like the Brexit debate. You know, it's like, you know, did you vote for Brexit or did you vote to stay in? And I think if you did your your geography in the UK, there were sort of pockets that wanted in, there's people that wanted out, and it's... It all depends on sort of the environment that person is brought up in. Yeah. Uh, predominantly, you know, and, and that comes down to you know the sociology of, of the environment, the, the, the amount of money environment, how much someone relies on money, how much somebody has money in their life, or how much someone puts value on money. You know, or do you put value on family? Is it friends? Is it work? Is it you know profession? Is it you know climbing up the social ladder? Is it climbing up the professional ladder? Is it you know? It's sort of ultimately, I think one of the things that I always say is that. It comes down to your values uh, in life uh, and, and your, your, your true meaning of what you see your purpose as being. You know, if someone says their purpose as being as being, you know, the best of their profession and, you know, earn as much money as they can, then obviously they have to they have to ingrain a certain pattern within them that is more dominant. And if someone says, well, no, it's about family and I'm, you know, I'm more concerned about, you know, the enjoyment of life, then obviously, you know, there are times when that person is not going to take the situation as serious as they want. So I think that sort of personality-driven basis is a dictator to which part of the brain you go when you feel stressed and which part you dissociate. Yeah. And then on the, on, the, on the loop side of that, the part of the brain you dissociate with probably embeds in your personality. So I think geographically, I think it's, you know, we, we I think sort of in the sort of the, the Brighton area, it's more, it's more open. And if I go up to the sort of Canary Wharf, it's more, it's more uh, linear and logical. You know, if I go to some parts of Scotland, go to Glasgow, for example, it seems to be very, more logical. If I go to Edinburgh, it's sort of more free. But that's you can see it by the environment that it's in. You know, uh, the, sort of the openness of the environment. I think dictates because actually, you know, you're embedded and you're born within a certain environment. I was born in in Hampshire, Bainstake, which had a certain ethos about it compared to my wife, who was born in Brighton, who had a certain ethos about that. So again, not only is my upbringing a, a major influence, the environment that I'm living in at the time. Yeah. Obviously, has a major influence. I can be, different, I, I, different, I, different countries as well. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, and we see the US. You know, certain parts of the US are very clinical. Certain parts, and again, that that goes back to where we had the Brexit and the non-Brexit uh, environment. They had the you know the Trump and the Clinton environment. You know, some parts of the states were big Trump, some parts were Clinton, and you know, it was sort of it was a mixture of all of it. And you you know, you could probably hypothesise which parts of the Brian, they were disassociated by the environment they're living in. Got you. I, I completely agree with what you're saying there because we here at our gym, the, the predominant uh, group of people that use the facility are uh, corporate people, so office workers sat down on their asses all day. And on the Tuesday lunchtime, I teach like a guided meditation class. And what I've found with that is they all come out of it feeling amazing and relaxed. And that's because... Going back to what you said, a lot of them, or the vast majority of them, I'd say, are more logical, more left side. And in that guided meditation class, I always use the imagination and waking up that imaginative state of mind, and they always feel better, um, better off of it. So everything you said kind of ties in nicely, and and I can relate to that. So 
strange, 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 strangely enough, it's that is that when you educate people like this, uh, who are so less, in this case, let's say, very logical left side of brain, and they are very business orientated, you actually, you know, when, when they do sort of, you know, believe and, and respect and, and, and listen to you. By, by them being able to associate with their right side of brain at that point of stress will actually make them make a better business decision. Yeah. And, and ultimately makes more money. So so at that moment of stress when you need to have as much clarity in this situation as you can, if you drift into one side, your clarity gets reduced and you're only going to respond to the actions that accordingly that you've got available to you. So being able to then drift back into the other side at the moment and have a second of clarification of what's going to happen will only make a better decision. Now, it does mean it's a better decision for anybody else, but for you, it might be a better decision. So for a businessman who's losing deals left, right, and centre because they're very argumentative and very logical, it's actually speaking to someone who's very open and free. Now, that ain't going to work. <laughs> you know, speak, you know, speaking to someone who's open and free in a very logical, strong format, it's going to scare the other person off. So automatically, again, that person might then go, well, this person I'm dealing business with is very open and likes, you know, likes to be more free-thinking. If I go and tell them what to do, they're going to run away. And if they're the ones who've got the money and I need to get the money off them, then I'm going to lose that. Actually, by having that second clarity, I might go, actually, I need to be a little bit softer at this moment. Yeah. Right. That softness might just give you the deal of your lifetime. That's amazing. Brilliant. I love that. Well, I think... I'm going to wrap it up um, because we've gone on we've gone on for a long while. But also, I mean, we could just go keep going all day. To be fair, but um, definitely look to do this again and maybe go along a different route or different topic. Um, but some amazing information you've shared there, and the brilliant thing about it as well is the stuff that the listeners can put into practice straight away, and stuff that I can put into practice straight away, which is even better. Um, just to just to finish things off then, mate, where can the people that listen to this go to find out more about you and get more information on on your skills and, and your your knowledge that you share with others? Yeah, I've uh, got a few websites, www.themovementman.com and www.brainmoveeducation.com. Uh, there's, two, there's two different factors for me. One is... Uh, I've got the Moon Man tag, which I had many years ago, which is speaking about the alternative views of current human movement, and the Brain Move side, which is the educational side, so you can find me there. Go to Stephen Braybrook on Facebook. Uh, I'm, I'm holding a skeleton, I think, and rightly. Uh, uh, so you can find me there. Twitter, Stephen Braybrook. Uh, Instagram, Stephen Braybrook. Uh, and there's lots of stuff. We've got Brain Move courses. We've got the book, Even Spy Mechanics. And on Monday, we have the first part of my three-part online course, uh, which this particular week is ten segregity. Uh I'm understanding the ten segregity word, but also put into real perspective when it comes to human movement and often alternative. So, www.themoverman.com, www.brainmoveeducation.com. You can email me at braverickstephen at gmail.com anytime. Uh, I'm very good at getting back on emails. So yeah, any questions you guys have, or just go to Facebook, Stephen Braverick, Instagram, uh, Twitter. And yeah, you'll search me out and find me. So, awesome. Uh, yeah, be, be, be just great, great to geek out. Best thing in the world to geek out on movement stuff. That's it, that. definitely. I love it. I love. That's why we're speaking because we're both passionate about it. We both love it, and I'm sure plenty of people listening to this will be in the same boat as us. So that's fantastic that they can uh, hit you up and contact you and uh, find out more about what you do. Uh, 
I like to end my podcast with a, a quote, and that can be one of your own, or it can be someone else's, it can be something that's motivational, something you live by, whatever, but just leave us with a bit of a quote that that means something to you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a quite personal thing, I think I do, I put quotes on, but one of the ones that I use most of the time is, you are who you are, because you believe what you believe. Uh, and if you think about that clinically in your movement, you know, you move how you are because you believe that's how you move. Uh, and if you change the perception and belief of how you think you move, you can change the movement itself. So you are who you are because you believe what you believe. Beautiful. Love it. That's great, mate. We're going to wrap it up. I appreciate your time. I know you're super, super busy and um, you've, you've spared a lot of time here to, to share your wisdom and your knowledge. So I appreciate that and I thank you. And, uh, absolute pleasure Addy can't wait to do it again mate and uh, yeah hope to see you very soon yeah perfect mate thanks a lot Cheers. wow there we have it another episode of the Kinetic Fitness Show wrapped up that was fantastic Stephen what a knowledgeable guy he is and some of the information he shared there was absolutely fascinating mind boggling mind blowing and I'm sure you guys would have took some great information from that Try out some of the, the exercises and the drills that you mentioned and just look at things from a different aspect and remember that the brain affects everything that we do and how we perform and move. As always, if you need any more help, if you need guidance, if you need structure and programming and you're just struggling with your overall health and well-being and fitness and movement, do not hesitate to get in touch with us here at Kinetic Fitness. You can head over to kineticfitness.co.uk and you can find our Instagram and Facebook at Kinetic Nottingham. That's K-I-N-E-T-I-K-N-O-T-T-M. And my personal Instagram is Ali underscore Kinetic. I will speak to you again next week and have a great week. Stay strong, stay fit, stay healthy and have a great week.